we notice there's a certain repetitiveness about the message. It's a message that's important for us to grasp, even today. Once again, we see a king who's in trouble, a great one who's about to be cut down. And again, we see Daniel is the only one in the land who can provide him with the answer that he needs. We see him again confronting the enchanters. We see again idolatry in the land. We again have the message of God being king of kings and lord of lords and ruler of princes. And we again see the principle of pride going before a fall. Now it doesn't matter that we see these things again and again because it's God who inspired his word. He inspired it to be written down for us several times. So as we go through the book of Daniel, it's good that we read it, we hear it, and we think about it. Because if you're like me, you're probably a slow learner. And when you've got an important message, it's important to hear it and realise that it's important. Now it doesn't matter that we see it again and again because God wants to speak to us. Who is actually in control of my life is a fundamental question to answer. Most of us breeze along in life not even thinking of the question, let alone thinking of the answer and how it might work out in life. And so one of the good things that happens in the book of Daniel is that it keeps on asking us this same question. It keeps raising the question as to whether you're still trying to be the king of your own life or whether you've recognised there is a king over and above your competence, your rule, your power and your might. Now in Daniel chapter 5 we see some developments. We have had King Nebuchadnezzar up until now and now we move right to the end of the Babylonian Empire to Belshazzar. And then right at the end of the chapter we have Darius the Mede and we'll look at him in two weeks' time. Each one of these kings is put into a conflict situation, each slightly different, and each one of them presents us with a different character, a different personality, a different facet of the character and personality that's also yours and mine. Now chapters 4 and 5 in the scheme of the book of Daniel belong side by side. Both deal with a king. Chapter 4 deals with Nebuchadnezzar, an arrogant king cut down but then restored after he spent a period of years in the paddocks out with the animals. When he was restored, he proclaimed, the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. The key message that I believe is throughout Daniel. And it's one of the key messages that I believe is in Scripture itself. Then, chapter 5 deals with Belshazzar, whose only appearance in Scripture is one brief chapter. An arrogant king who had not learnt from the history 
that Nebuchadnezzar was involved in and he's about to be cut down once and for all. He ignored God, who King Nebuchadnezzar had finally recognised as the one who appoints kings to power and removes them when he chooses. Well, let me ask, how do we stack up? Are we like Daniel or do we more resemble the Babylonian kings who lived as if they were in charge of their own lives? From what I read, from what I've read, it appears that after Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign, he was followed by his son, Evil Merodach, who was assassinated after he'd reigned only two years. Then after some political intrigue, a guy called Nabonidus became king, probably another uh, son, I believe, because we're talking about direct line descent, and reigned for 17 years. History records that he was afraid of the Babylonians and so he went on campaigns to conquer other parts. Then he settled in another part of the empire and left his eldest son, Belshazzar, in charge as a co-regent. That's why when when uh, um, Belshazzar is promising uh, a present for interpreting this message, he says, I will give you the third highest position in the kingdom this is one of the saddest chapters in the entire bible and is the only glimpse we're given of this ungodly ruler Belshazzar is presented as someone a lot like many people today living only for this life living to gratify himself with absolutely no thought for eternity too many people today are living for the good times never realising there'll come a day when the fun will end or when challenges come into their lives. They never stop and ask the one important question. Who am I living for? Who is actually in control of my life? Belshazzar is king. Babylon is under siege and his party is in full swing. It was a night of drunkenness and debauchery when Belshazzar, who it says was drinking the wine, asked his servants, as we read in verse 2, to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. He was surely drunk because he did what few people in their right mind would do at that time to test the power of a foreign god in his drunken pride he thought he'd show the superiority of his gods by ridiculing the god of the hebrews he treated yahweh the one true god as if he were nothing and he had probably so despised the jews and their god that he thought he'd just mock them and their god one more time at his banquet and here We read in verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. 
the raucous behaviour stopped. Belshazzar was choked into silence by the mysterious writing on the wall. The blatant idolatry, mocking Yahweh as if he was nothing, was one step too far. The penalty for Belshazzar was death. Belshazzar was shaken to his core when he saw the hand of God. So he, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, turned to the wise men who came to his aid. But like the wise men assisting Nebuchadnezzar, they couldn't tell him what the issue really was. Then we read that the news of the crisis travelled to the king's mother who came in, probably sensing serious trouble, but yet she wasn't alarmed. After all, she remembered Daniel and his ability when all the others had failed. So she listed his credentials as a recommendation. She was almost saying, don't worry, he'll sort this out for you. Can you imagine what Daniel thought when he saw that debauchery? Each of the times he'd been called to assist Nebuchadnezzar, he did so honestly, but without mincing words. But he was gracious, he was respectful. He issued a firm warning when it was needed, pointing to God's power, but also to God's grace when we repent. Now as an old man, he was still there in the palace precincts, even if not a key member of the king's staff. When those skilled in occultic practices failed to discern the message, Daniel was summoned in as the last resort. Fine clothes and jewellery befitting royalty were offered with the offer of being third in the kingdom. Probably an offer that Belshazzar thought was about the best he could give anybody. It certainly appealed to Belshazzar. But we note Daniel's reply, blunt and to the point. Keep your gifts or give them to someone else. After all, what use are they when you know they'll have no value the next day? About as much value as a stack of fresh hay offered to you that's a few minutes downwind from a bushfire on a scorching hot, windy day. Daniel had probably read Jeremiah's prophecy from the Lord, so he knew what was going to happen to Babylon, even before he walked into the room. Once again, we see Daniel living, trusting God. He had a message of damnation to deliver to the king, Belshazzar, and he honestly and forthrightly gave it. Daniel firstly gave him a lesson in history, and then a theology lesson. He recounted the power, the brutality, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar as conquering ruler, but how God had then caused him to live as an animal until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Then he dealt straight on with the issue at hand. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, 
And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Gods which cannot see or hear or understand. But you didn't honour the God of heaven. Belshazzar had lived a life opposed to God. As folks say today, he made a number of poor judgments. However, sin is sin. And without Christ's redemption, the sinner remains guilty. There are few blacker characters in the Bible. In verses 22 and 23, we read that idolatry was a part of his lifestyle, drinking and praising the gods of wood and silver. These gods couldn't see or hear or understand, and he he was leading the people in singing their praises. What an insult to God, who had shown his predecessor his power. Idolatry is an insult to man's intelligence. And yet today, religious bric-a-brac is big business. Caught up in idolatry is the whole practice of sorcery. The enchanters and magicians in Babylonian society was riddled with these practices, which if they weren't simply nonsense, were involved with demonic powers. Today too, over 2,600 years later, there are astrology columns and advertisements in the classifieds for different mediums you can go to. And you can go and look up these people who will do their thing. Have nothing to do with them. For the powers these people talk about are not from God. We don't know Belshazzar's blood alcohol content, but he, along with a thousand from his court, was having a drunken party. He was a man whose judgment and sense at this time was lost in grog. And all too real. On this occasion it was eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. He reduced himself to less than himself by the stupefying influence of excessive alcohol. Daniel makes it clear that this man's foolish pride lies at the bottom of much of what takes place. The story of Nebuchadnezzar, his great-grandfather, must have been well known, as Daniel points out in verse 22. A man who was reduced to an animal for a number of years until he recognised who God is. And then, if you read chapter 4, you'll recognise he wants his whole empire to know who Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, is. Daniel continued teaching Belshazzar, You know all this, Belshazzar, but yet your life and your ways are in God's hand too. But you think you run your own life and your own affairs, even in the face of an empire that's about to crush you. It is the essence of pride to imagine that you can live without God and to act as if he is not there. So we have a drunken, superstitious, idolatrous, proud fool He was sacrilegious, for he took the holy vessels formerly used in worshipping God and used them for his own drunken revelry. He used them for toasting his idols at his drunken orgy. It is this arrogant blasphemy 
that is the rock bottom of the barrel. Daniel could interpret the message. Once again, we see God enabling a man who trusted him completely to understand and provide the answer. Belshazzar is told that the days of his kingdom have been numbered. He has been weighed and found deficient, and his kingdom will be divided. He has crossed the line with God, and all that remains is certain judgment. He has offered no options, no alternatives. It is time to pay for the things he has done. And so we read that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. Belshazzar died a sudden death. He had believed that Babylon was safe, so in carelessness and essentially defiance of any who might think they could possibly attack the city, he threw a party where alcohol flowed freely and he became thoroughly wasted. Who knows how many who should have been keeping watch in Babylon were there with him, giving no thought to the city's predicament. Babylon was said to have had enough food stored for 20 years and plenty of water from the Euphrates River, which bisected the city. It was surrounded by a series of immense walls as high as 90 metres. There were guard towers, soldiers, and Belshazzar so believed his city was unconquerable and expected that his kingdom would continue for many years. But while they partied, the enemies who were encamped around Babylon diverted the water of the Euphrates, and when the water levels fell low enough, the Mede and Persian troops simply marched in right under the walls. They marched into the city, and Belshazzar was slain. Things didn't have to turn out this way for Belshazzar. He knew the truth about God, and yet he failed to act on it. He shook his fist in the face of God and turned away from him, and he died in that condition to face eternal damnation. In fact, one wonders if he still hears Daniel's proclamation, you're weighed in the balance and found wanting. Belshazzar was not alone in facing a disastrous end. His story is not told for academic interest or an interesting event from a world in days gone by. It's all written as a lesson to everybody. God desires to save sinners. His desire is so great that he sent his son to die on the cross, to set aside the judgment for whosoever will come to him. 2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us that today is a day of salvation, but there will come a day when time, mercy and grace will be exhausted. In that day, as on the night of Belshazzar, nothing will remain but death, hell and judgment. Where do you stand? The decision is too important to leave it until tomorrow. Are you under the judgment of God or have you placed and continue to place your trust in Christ who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin? There is also a challenge for each one of us who knows the Lord. Let us reflect for a moment on Daniel's willingness 
to be God's witness. His presence and influence, as I quote from the Queen Mother's words, This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Remember, they'd given Daniel a new name at the start of the book. Nebuchadnezzar called him Belteshazzar, the name of his pagan god. But 70 years later, what are they doing? They're calling him Daniel. The king couldn't change his name. 70 years in Babylon couldn't change his name. He came to Babylon as Daniel, and 70 years later he was Daniel, and he died Daniel. Call him whatever you like, but he is Daniel, God's man in Babylon. To me, the challenge to me out of this is, does my life make a definitive statement like Daniel's? And I'll leave that with you. Does your life make a definitive statement like Daniel's? When folks see you in action, when they interact with you or hear about you, do they know you are God's man or woman or younger person? It doesn't matter whether you are younger or older. Or are you trying hard to do your best? Thinking you need to make a difference yourself. Trying to prove something to others because that is how you become successful. When in reality, you're acting as if God isn't important or as if he doesn't really exist. I challenge you that God does exist and he wants you to live a worthwhile life, a purposeful life, like Daniel, who lived a life that can be counted in contrast to King Belshazzar, who did not even consider how short his life might be. Do you know the Lord? If not, do you realise he came to earth and died a brutal death on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin, for our willful rebellion and to restore us to God? He made the way open to each person to respond to Christ and to settle the issue of where they will spend eternity once and for all. In closing, my challenge is that each of us determine to make the most of our lives in light of eternity. Just as God acted 2,000 years ago, let us recognise his importance in our lives and expectantly anticipate the day when we discover that God does use our lives too in what he is doing here on earth. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have a purpose for each one who you have chosen, who has responded to you. Father, sometimes we don't see it. Help us all to see it and to look to you and to live our lives in that light and look forward to living lives that please you, that honour you, that are purposeful. Father, we thank you that you love us and you care for us. And as we go into the week, we ask that you would guide us. And this might be a special week as we think 
And we know that you have a purpose for us. And we are your people, living here for the time that you have given us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude by singing hymn number 251. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one, lay down. Your head upon my breast. Oh. Ninety one. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, thank you. Just re- being reminded I forgot to take up the offering. So as we're singing, can we please take up the offering? Father, we thank you that you walk with us through life. We thank you that you provide for us. Father, we ask that you would accept these gifts that we have brought to you and use them for the furtherance of the work you have for us and for this church. For we ask it and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.